You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Happy Friday. Yes. Hey, uh, before I start, I wanted to say a, a friend of mine, Professor Nathan Miller, made me aware recently of the Asbury Lookalike website. <laughs> Naturally, I was curious to see, was I on there? Uh, so sure enough, I, I went to the site, and uh, <laughs> I was. And I got to be honest with you, this is interesting because I thought to myself, here we go again. You see, oftentimes people will run up to me and say, Antonio Banderas, can I have your autograph? And I, I have to say, I'm not Antonio Banderas. My name's Kevin Brown. I work at Asbury. Uh, so not surprised. Hey, this morning, I am really excited and enthusiastic to talk to you about this particular subject. Asbury is a Christian liberal arts university in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Now, there's a lot that can be unpacked from that very statement, but this morning, I want to give specific attention to our theological heritage. What does it mean to be a Wesleyan school or a Wesleyan holiness school. Now, a few disclaimers to this. First and foremost, this is not exhaustive. We could literally spend every chapel between now and the end of the year and not mine the depths of what this means for us theologically. Second, some of what I will describe today can be described or defined under the Wesleyan holiness tradition, while other parts might be within the broader Wesleyan tradition, and there is a difference. But finally, let me quickly say that it's not as if Asbury has some inordinate, uh, inordinate, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, we're not, we don't have some odd fascination with John Wesley as a person necessarily. Rather, Wesley, as former president Dr. David Geyertson says, Wesley is a case study for us as a school. In other words, John Wesley and his theology are valuable insofar as it pulls forward New Testament theology, and Wesleyanism is valuable insofar as it pulls forward early church practice. So let me jump right into it. I'm going to go through some distinctives of our Wesleyan and Wesleyan holiness tradition and what that actually means for us here at Asbury University and hopefully for you as a Christian seeking to be more like Jesus Christ. So the first distinctive is the primacy of Scripture. That scripture is the guidepost for Christian life and for doctrine and for reality. Now, this is not a new claim or a controversial claim within Christian circles, but the real issue relates to our interpretation of scripture. We see in Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we have a lawyer, and the lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says something very theologically important here. What is written in the law, and how do you read it? And then the lawyer says, 
mirroring the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Now, notice here that Jesus doesn't simply say, what does Scripture say? Or what's in the law? But rather, what is written in the law, and how do you interpret it? How do you understand it? How do you read it? In other words, this implies that there is what's written, but then a responsible interpretation of it. And moreover, Jesus says later, you've answered correctly, which also implies that there is an incorrect way to answer that question. We might imagine if the lawyer said, well, I think that I should seek my authoritative desires and stay true to myself for the rest of my life in an unashamed way. Jesus would probably say, not quite. No, that's not it. But rather, he says, you have answered correctly. You may have seen this bumper sticker that I have seen that it says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And again, we would say, not quite. It's not simply that God says it or that Scripture says it. We have to responsibly interpret what is said. And what do we have to assist us in a responsible interpretation? How do we understand our life of faith? How do we arrive upon theological truth? In building upon the Anglican tradition, John Wesley tells us that actually it is experience, reason, and tradition that allow us to responsibly interpret Scripture. Now, notice that Scripture is in the middle here. Scripture has primacy as our way to theological truth. But we use these other faculties, we use these other guideposts in order to arrive upon what is good and right and true. Reason, for example, our cognitive faculties as a means to better understand God's holy word. We don't have to abandon our reason to be people of faith. Have you heard the Mark Twain quote that says, faith is believing what you know ain't so? Not correct. Rather, we see in Hebrews that we have faith is confidence in what we hope for and certainty in what we do not see. In other words, our faith is reasonable. What about experience? One of my favorite passages in Scripture is John 9. This was the gentleman who was born blind from birth, who Jesus heals. And this was very controversial with the Pharisees, as you might recall. And so they finally, at one point, pull this gentleman in, and they're having a debate, they're having an argument about whether Jesus himself was sinful who healed this man. And recall what he says. He says, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I do not know. Here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I can see. He was talking about his experience. And notice, not experience, here's how I feel, but my experience, this is my experience of Jesus Christ. Many years ago, when I was in graduate school, I had an opportunity to speak at Cambridge. Not because I'm smart, uh, believe me. Uh, It was because it was a graduate uh, conference for graduate students who were doing cross-disciplinary work of which I was doing. And I wanted to speak about how the Orthodox Christian faith tradition might have some useful insights for how we think about complex social arrangements. It did not go well. People in the audience were either laughing and jeering at me or they had a scowl on their face. In fact, when I got done, 
I was accosted by a woman who was absolutely disgusted that I would talk about Christianity, that I would invoke faith at an academic conference at Cambridge. Shortly after that, another woman came up to me and would not leave me alone. She was totally puzzled. How can you be at this conference and be someone that believes in these mystical, metaphysical things? After getting through that, there was a dinner that evening, this beautiful uh, building. There was a lawn out front. It was wonderful, except as soon as I got there, a gentleman confronted me, and we spent two hours talking about the reasonableness of the Christian faith. But finally, at the end of that two hours, I said, you know, I need to tell you something. We've talked about the rationality for faith, for what's metaphysical, our epistemic tools that we use to understand reality around all these other things. And I just finally said, I need you to know Jesus Christ has changed my life. I went to an altar of faith once, and I got up, and I was never the same after I surrendered to him. As you can imagine, the conversation ended <laughs> then. He said, that's nice. <laughs> but it's true. It's my experience of Jesus, not simply what's up here, but my experience that I have. And finally, we have tradition. Tradition is what G.K. Chesterton calls the democracy of the dead, the collected wisdom of the past. You and I know we're not ahistorical beings that just pop out of nowhere ex nihilo, right? We're born into stories, as one philosopher puts it. Earlier this year, there was a prominent person of faith who said their faith was shaky, but they made this quote, how could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about it. Now, I don't want to be uncharitable. Maybe they had a different context, but just at face value, that's a silly comment. People have been talking about this for centuries upon centuries. We have tradition, and we can look to that tradition as a guidepost for our faith. Now, again, these tools, these guideposts aren't equal to Scripture, but they allow us, they are lenses, rational lenses, experiential lenses, cultural lenses by which we can understand Scripture. All right, number two, a distinctive is both and theology. Not either or, but some both and theology. Let me give a couple of prominent examples. First and foremost, John Wesley had this what we might call a Roman Catholic sensibility, that our practices, our habits, our rituals, these things shape us and they liturgize us and they catechize us into certain kinds of people. I once uh, was talking to some students about this and I said, who in here is a rabid UK fan? And of course, several raised their hands. And I said, did someone sit down with you at one point and give you this clear intellectual argument as to why you should be a UK fan. Of course not. You're liturgized into it. There are practices, there are habits, there are experiences. And so Wesley recognized that, but he also recognized what we might call evangelical sensibilities as well. In other words, these are grace, life in the Spirit, a new birth, things that we can't do in ourselves that only God can do for us. Another both end for Wesley would be acts of piety and acts of mercy. Both of these are means for you and I to understand God's grace. They're means of grace. Acts of piety, scripture reading, prayer, fasting, contemplation, sacramental acts, Bible study, 
with groups of others. These things that we do that fulfill and fortify us as people of faith and as followers of Jesus Christ. But also acts of mercy, good works, visiting prisoners, feeding the hungry, taking up the plight of the poor and the marginalized. We can hold these two together. I always thought it was fascinating, James 1.27, that true religion is to look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Our righteous acts towards others to show the love of Jesus Christ as well as acts of piety that build us and fulfill us and fortify us, as mentioned, to be more and more like Jesus. Distinctive number three is grace. Now, grace is the scandal of Christianity in many ways, and I say that because many other religions, you earn your salvation, you work for your salvation in some way. And we know in the Christian faith, it is through grace that we are saved. We receive grace. You've heard it described as a gift or an unmerited favor that we have. But while Wesley affirmed that we are pardoned by our grace, grace also empowers us as well. In other words, it, it isn't something done for us, but it is something that is done in us. Wesley talks about prevenient grace. You heard Kaylin Moran talk about this a few weeks ago. Convicting grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. And they're all one thing. There are different ways that we experience God's grace. Steve Deneff, who's been here many times before, he says, the real debate has never been over how many works of grace there are, but over what grace can do once you and I fully cooperate and whether or not this can happen in our lifetime. Distinctive number four. Distinctive number four. Bam, there we go. Holiness and everlasting habits. Like Martin Luther, Wesley held a view of justification that we are justified before God because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Again, nothing controversial there. But while our faith alone may save us, the meta-narrative of Scripture says that if our faith is alone, it probably isn't faith. Okay? So in other words, our life of faith is not simply about being justified before God, but rather it's also about our sanctification. There are different ways of describing this. To be sanctified means to be set apart and to be made holy. It is to be cleansed. It's the manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For Wesley, holiness and sanctification is the establishment of the love of God in the soul without any rival. Later he says, it's where our motion accords with his will. It is possessing he says also the mind of Christ that Paul talks about in Philippians 2. And we might think about what is the relationship between this holiness and how we think about sin. And I say this because much of our theology suge suggests that sin actually characterizes our life. That sin actually characterizes the Christian life. There was a worship service once where the, the leader got up and before he began to sing, he said, I've been sinning all week, but today I am here to worship. 
And I want to say to you that that would be a bizarre quote in the early church. That'd be a bizarre statement. So I want to share a statement here, and hopefully this makes sense to you. There is a difference between the inability to sin and the ability not to sin. Again, there is a difference between the inability to sin and the ability not to sin. The first says we can't sin, but the second says we don't have to. As Dr. Bounds might put it, we may always have the capacity to sin, but we don't have to live in its grip. I've shared a quote with some by Christopher West. He writes this wonderful little book. It's a companion to uh, Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. But in it, he said, it's as if you and I are driving around with flat tires. And this is all we've ever known, is to have a car with flat tires. And the, the rubber is shredding off the tires, and the rims are getting dented, and it's a bumpy ride. And we just think, this is the way it is, because we've always been driving this way. And then West comes in and says, Jesus came so that you and I could have air in the tires. So that you and I could say, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. Another bumper sticker. (laughs) Bumper sticker theology is bad, by the way. (laughs) It says, I remember seeing this once, it said, Christians are just like you, but forgiven. If I were not a person of faith, I think I might find that offensive. Oh, you and I are just the same, except you've offered some kind of cosmic phrase that lets you play a harp in the heavens while I melt in a lake of fire when I die. Uh, Now, obviously, I don't believe that, but that's a perception that is out there. And again, this is not quite true. We don't have to live in the grip of sin, and we have the opportunity to be different, sanctified, and set apart. I've mentioned many times, I'll say it again because it's such a great quote, Gypsy Smith, British evangelist, He said there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, and most people will never read the first four. How is your life being read to others? Related to this, Wesley doesn't simply use the phrase holy, he uses the phrase holy love. I've said before, to love is human. In many ways, I was taught growing up that I secured my salvation with the faculties above my neck. (laughs) what I believed in my mind, and what I affirmed with my mouth. But actually, if we go back to other thinkers like Augustine all the way to Wesley, the center of gravity for those in the faith tradition might be more around our heart. What do we love? What are we oriented towards? What are we giving ourselves to? Now, first, this is important because it's an important way to bear witness. Remember, Paul says in Corinthians 13, If you don't have love, you are are a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. (laughs) Your noise. Steve Deneff also says, opinions are what you get when you drain wisdom of its empathy. What a tremendous quote. A lot of opinions going around, not a lot of empathy. A lot of noise, not a lot of love. And his notes on Luke 14 about the great banquet and compelling others to come into the great banquet. Wesley says, compel them with all the violence of love. That's a convicting statement 
Because I think to myself, who do I love violently? And if I'm trying to bear witness to someone else about Jesus Christ and about the life of faith, do I start with a violent love towards them? So it's not only important to bear witness, but also it's important for what I'll call our eternal fitness. I love this quote by Wesley. He says, love prepares us for and adorns us in eternity. Wesley calls this everlasting habitations or everlasting habits. And the suggestion here is that heaven is not there. It's actually here, and it's not then. It's actually now. There's this wonderful statement by Victor Foster. Uh, He's a pastor. He's a a theologian, Ph.D. scholar. And he talks about if you go to a concert, he said, and you pay money to go into that concert, you have a right to be in that concert. Paying the money has given you the right. He said, but imagine if you're tone deaf at that concert. He said, you would not enjoy the concert very much. At best, it would be noise. It'd be hard to hear, uh, but it might be grating and frustrating. You might want to leave. So there's the question of your right to be at the concert, but there's also the question of your musicality, your fitness to be at the concert. Shepard says this, justification is our right to heaven. Sanctification is our fitness for heaven. Uh, yes, there we are. Let me skip ahead one more. Yeah, I may need your help in the back. Wesley has this great quote, without the righteousness of Christ, we could have no claim to glory. Without holiness, we could have no fitness for it. Where does this cash out? Here's why this is important. Again, a statement I want to be careful with. Holiness is not simply a requirement for heaven. It is the environment of heaven. Does that make sense? Holiness is not simply a requirement for heaven. It is the environment of heaven. It's not simply a condition. It's the condition of heaven. So if you're selfish, if you hoard your wealth, if you're xenophobic, if you're racist, if you're mistrustful, if you're hateful to others, if you're poisonous, if you're slanderous, if you're constantly suspicious, if you view people as obstacles and threats to you, if your view of freedom is a lack of commitments and total autonomy, then the question of whether you get into heaven is actually less relevant than the question of do you even want to be there or not? I mentioned this question earlier, how could a loving God send someone to hell? My refrain to that is, how could a loving God make someone go to a place, heaven, they don't want to be? In his book, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, N.D. Wilson describes this uh, uh, story of a a student and her uh, atheist student, her Protestant professor, and they're going out to eat with a group after class And in the middle of the dinner, she bluntly looks at the professor and says, do you think I'm going to hell? And the professor looks back at her and says, don't you want to? She's shocked by this. He said, God is who he is. Do you want to be with him? The question isn't whether do you get to go to heaven. The question is, do you want to be in a heavenly reality? 
And I think the question is equally relevant to us today. Eternity is not simply a matter of what we believe. It's also a matter of what we want. What is our heart aimed towards? Our holy love. Distinctive number five is wholeness. Very quickly, one of Wesley's most popular books during his lifetime was Primitive Physic. The book is about diet and exercise, health and well-being. Now, doctors won't exactly pull this off the shelf these days when they want to consult uh, the best practices. But here's the point. Wesley possessed a full and holistic picture of what it meant to be a human being. He didn't elevate spiritual health at the expense of physical or emotional well-being. Rather, he advocated training in the mind and in the body and in the spirit as he saw an interdependence between these. Your wholeness is not simply a matter of what you do in Hughes, in this building here. It's also what you eat in the cafeteria. It's also about your healthy relationships or the nature of your relationships on this campus and off this campus. It's how you spend your time in your dorm room. It's how you exercise. It's your quiet reflection. It's how you feed your mind. This is the fullness. This is a full picture of wholeness. Last but not least, Wesley talked about holiness as happiness. We find this a lot in his writing. And he's drawing on a classical idea, what we might call eudaimonia, that happiness and satisfaction are linked to living well. That living the way we were designed to live is intricately tied to our flourishing, our fulfillment, gratification, and satisfaction as a human being. So I'm going to jump to uh, my last couple of slides as I wrap up here. Uh, again, not exhaustive, but I want to give a taste of some of these salient features, distinctives of our institution. I'm reading a book right now by David Kinneman. He's the president of the Barna organization. He has this wonderful line in it where he says, ministry should excavate questions that lie at the heart of the human experience and to help people to grapple with the answers found in Jesus. And let me just share with you, when I prepare for messages like this, I think about my thoughts in school and these things, but the dominant thing I have to tell you in the back of my mind is what did my 20-year-old self, sitting where you're sitting years ago, need to hear? And what questions needed to be excavated for me and grappled with and brought to bear against the truth of Jesus Christ and our Christian faith tradition? So let me think through a few of these with you. Whoops. First and foremost, what guidepost are you using today to arrive upon what is good and right and true? What is authoritative to you about those guideposts? Two, where are you practicing acts of piety in your life? And where are you practicing acts of mercy? I used to share with our business students that in a given day, the average person will see between 4,500 and 7,000 impressions many advertisements. And these aren't benign. These are things telling you what to believe, what to pursue, what is right, what is popular, what will give you your best life. What is authoritative in your life? And how are you inculcating other values, other perspectives, heavenly lenses? As William Blake says, not simply seen with the eye, but through it, with a heart and with a conscience and with a biblical mindset.
How are you serving others in acts of mercy? Are you receiving God's grace today as a pardon or as power? Or both, hopefully. That grace not only does something for you, but it does something in you. Next set of questions. Are you experiencing fullness in your life? Are you finding victory in your Christian walk? Do you look more like Christ today? Do you, are you simply saying that I'm just like everyone else, but I'm forgiven, or is there something more? Does the cross do something more for you today? What practices are making you fit for a heavenly reality? The very practices, the rituals, the symbols, the things that you do right now, are they preparing you for a heavenly reality? Are you fit for a heavenly reality? Where are you practicing and experiencing wholeness across every dimension of your life? And finally, what are you designed for? Are you, as Paul says, taking hold of the life that really is life? We've quoted John 10.10 several times in here this semester, the abundant life. And can I just end by saying to you, Asbury, this is not about following rules. It's about becoming the best version of yourself. I want you to be educated, rigorous, relevant education, get a job, set the world on fire, all these great things. But I want you to leave here the best version of yourself, more like Jesus Christ, more into the fullness of Christ and who God designed you to be and more into the best version of who you are.